Okay, Genesis chapter 37. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me there. And we'll read the same portion of Scripture that Brother Wilbur read already. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, and in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colours. And his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren. They hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his, told it his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou, in, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream. All that his brethren said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the same. Interesting should be. So the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this precious time that we can look into your word and we do thank you for it. We thank you that from it we gain the knowledge of you, that our faith is increased, that our understanding is open and through it your Holy Spirit teaches us your ways. Father, we pray for that work to happen today, that our hearts would be open to your truth, that you would open our eyes to what you would have us to learn and that that truth may sink down deep into our hearts, that it might form roots and it might bear fruit in time, that it might glorify you. We thank you for this time, for this place and for your word. And I ask that you would hide me behind your cross as I seek to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Most of the world's attention is uh, turned to one particular place in the world today. Uh, if you haven't uh, already realised and you haven't uh, had your TV on or any other type of media on, there's a war raging in Ukraine. And as its war rages in Ukraine and, you know, thousands of lives are lost and on both sides and, you know, thousands upon thousands of homes are being destroyed and politicians rage, you know, and people argue about reasons why and, you know, for and against and the history books are being written. Those history books differ depending on what side of the conflict you're actually on. So if you're an historian in Russia, you might be writing a particular narrative that is a bit different to the historian in Ukraine. And if you're outside of those two regions, but you're aligned slightly with one or the other, you may tell a different story depending on where you stand. And so depending on where you stand in the conflict, what side, those records and those history books change and slightly differ. It's amazing because in this age of information, where information is like an avalanche, that comes to you and the information we get is so quick and so vast. Uh, it's amazing that two people can be watching the same video about something and still come up with two different conclusions about why and how and, and, and where. And so millions can be discussing the same topic, seeing the same information and coming up with two different um, reasons why and 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 ways of looking at it, and they can still disagree. And what often is disagreed upon are the motives of things. One of the hardest things to determine, isn't it? 
Why did so-and-so do this to so-and-so? What's the motive? And when people try to analyze people's motives about what they do, and I'm not just speaking about the Ukraine, but in everything in life, we love to think that we can actually gauge people's motives by the actions, by, by what they did. That's a pretty hard thing to do. But yet, people in this world have become experts at working out motives. Um, everyone has a particular set, a thing that they, that they believe about one thing or another. In fact, about pretty much everything in life. Um, but if you haven't understood a particular principle, it's that information itself is not necessarily the truth, is it? You can have a vast amount of information about something, but not, not ever arrive to the actual truth. There are plenty of books about religion in the world, but many of them don't come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world, do they? There's a whole lot of information out there. So you may have a lot of information at your fingertips, and we do. We live in an age where there's more information available to us than any other time in the history of this planet, but yet we have so many divisions and disagreements about the very same things. So the information may not itself represent truth, for information can be twisted to suit different points of view, and the truth is hard, is hard to find today that ever has been. Because... Facts can be twisted and manipulated by people's points of view. And any history book, however it's written, is only ever going to be as good as the quality of the information it contains and the bias of the person that wrote it. Yet there's a history book that's written in this world that's available to us that is perfect in every respect. It doesn't contain the, the biases of men. It, it's written by a perfect author who sits outside of the situation and isn't influenced by those things. His heart isn't drawn one way or the other because he sees things in perfect clarity and he not only uh, knows the facts of what happened, he knows the exact motives of what's happened because he's able to see deep in people's hearts. I mean, what I'm speaking about is the word of God that we hold in our hands. The Bible is an amazing history book. There is not another history book in, the, in existence that is as honest as this book, okay? That is as unbiased as this book. This is not just a, a story written by people with biases, as I've said. And you can tell that because the main protagonists in the actual book, the people who are meant to be the heroes, you know, that particular, whether it's not the Ukrainians or the Russians, I'm speaking about the Jews, you know, if there was a Jews writing a history book about themselves, you'd expect that that history would look quite good, if you know what I mean. But yet, this book puts them in a very, very terrible light. Oftentimes, the, their own history book says terrible things about them. It's brutally honest about their shortcomings, about their failings, about their sin, about their lack of faith and belief. And that's one of the main reasons you can, you can look at this book and say it's true because the people who wrote it, and it's written by Jews, okay, from the beginning to the end, from Moses to John, they were all Jews, okay, yet they were written with a fashion that is brutally honest about their own shortcomings. And the Bible is an amazing record of God's dealings with man. And those dealings, as we see in the pages of his book, are primarily focused around this relationship that he, that he has with a group of people. A people that he chose to reveal himself to and to enter into a special bond or relationship with. The reason we, we call um, uh, Jews God's chosen people is simply because they were chosen. They didn't choose themselves. He chose them. They are chosen from the point of view that he chose a lineage of people, an ancestry of individuals through whom he would, the God of the universe would reveal himself to and have an extraordinary connection with for a purpose, actually for a multiplicity of purposes. Why did he choose them? Is it because they're more holy than everyone else? Maybe they were more powerful than everyone else. Maybe, maybe God knew they were going to be the most powerful nation in the world. Well, no, he actually says no. Turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we'll just look at just a couple of passages that reveal 
God's nature. Deuteronomy chapter 7. So in this passage, God had saved Israel out of Egypt and he answers to them specifically why he chose them or actually why he didn't choose them or, or the reason he did, that he chose them was not. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. That's what the meaning of the word holy is above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out of, with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So let's just stop there for a moment. Why did, uh, remember, so it was God that did the choosing here. And he tells them, I didn't choose you because you were a great nation and you were already powerful. And you, you so therefore the great, the greatest God of all, you know, should be aligned with the greatest people. No, he goes, I chose you when you were the least because you were greatest in number. In fact, he chose them when there was not a nation at all. He chose them, he chose a man, and he said, I want you to leave your country and I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. I'm going to give that as an inheritance to your people and I'm going to make you a nation. So there wasn't even a nation. He said he would make them a great nation. And that man was Abraham. And if you look in uh, verse 8, it says he chose them and he saved them because he wanted to keep an oath that he'd made. So one of the things we learn about God is when he makes a promise, he has every intention of keeping it, despite what situations they get themselves into. But you might say, well, Pastor, it doesn't say, it says they're holy here. In verse, it says, thou art a holy people. Might not that mean that they were chosen because they were holy? They were better than everyone else. Doesn't holy mean more righteous here? You know, maybe God saved them from Egypt and brought them into the promised land, defeating all the inhabitants of the promised land before them because they were more worthy. Well, he answered this one as well. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3 and 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 9, 3 says, Understand therefore this day, so they're about to enter the promised land, that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. That's their opposition. That's the people that were in Canaan. And he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, and the Lord thy God doth drive the Lord thy God drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't Israel's righteousness or their uprightness that God says was the reason he was going to drive out all, the, all these uh, other peoples from Canaan. In fact, he said that it was their evil more than, your, than anything that was good about you because their, their evil and their depravity had gone down to such a, 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 a depth that they were sacrificing their children to their gods, that they were doing things which were abominable in, the, in, in God's sight. 
And when a nation, it seems, and when a people, and this is God has done this to the entire world at one stage, he destroys something in order to build it back up. When it gets to a stage where the sins reach, a, reach the doors of heaven. And the people of Canaan were in that situation. Their sin was so grievous that God said, I, I have to clear them out. But it was it formed part of a promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he was going to give them this land anyway. But in the time that they were away from that land, the Canaanites had had grown, multiplied, their, their religion and their faith had become more and more depraved. And God says, now's the time to clear them out. But he says very clearly to Israel, it's not because of how good you are that I'm doing this. Get that out of your head. Because the time, even you will see me destroy one after the other, after the other in judgment. And he said, don't even think in your mind that this is because you're good, that you deserved this. In fact, look at verse 6. He tells them in no uncertain terms, just in case they didn't understand what he was talking about. He says, understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. For thou art a... A stiff-necked people. Talk about brutal honesty. You imagine, you know, you might think to yourself, you know, well, you know, God's saving us and there's something good about us that, you know, that's why God's giving us this name and then God says, I'm giving you this because you're good. Just understand something. You're a stiff-necked people. I've put up with so much from you. I'm giving you this land because I promised it. Because my love never diminishes when I choose to love. But you are very naughty children. Don't ever think that you're good and you deserve whatever you get. God did not call or save Israel because they were more righteous or more powerful, but because God keeps his promises, because he is unchanging, because he always comes through. And they were called, called holy, not because they were more righteous, but because when God sets his attention on you and sets his love upon you and says that you belong to me, that's what the very definition of holy is. God sets you apart for himself. You now belong to him. It's a bit like a husband and a wife. They enter into a relationship. One belongs to the other in a very special way. And God says, you're holy because... I have made you holy. I call you holy. You now belong to me. And in a sense, we're here today because of a similar reason, you see. We're here today not because we were greater, smarter, more holy, more deserving. There was nothing upright in us that righteous that we can sit here and say, oh, look, we're so much better than those people out and God is saying to us this morning, don't get it in your head that you've got what you have because you are somehow better. Yes, there's depravity and sin in this world and sometimes God intervenes and takes away that depravity when it reaches a certain level. But he says, don't think, even to us, that we are somehow better than all of them. We are not. God didn't save you or me because we're more righteous. God simply saved us because he loved us and we received that love. We received that forgiveness. God kept his promise, which he always does, because he promised from the beginning he was going to send a saviour to save this sin, from this, to save this world from its sin, and he did. God is always, always faithful. And so the history of Israel describes this beautiful love story this beautiful story of faithfulness, but not Israel's faithfulness, of God's faithfulness. Not Israel's love, of God's love. Not Israel keeping his promises, of God keeping his promises. And we see through his interactions with his chosen people and, their, and his, his, we see their faithlessness many, many times, but we see his utter faithfulness to his promises. God has always shown himself to be holy to be righteous, to be loving, to be forgiving. And Israel, as I've shared with you before, is a picture of us. Too easily distracted. Too easily um, uh, put off. 
too easy to take our eyes off the thing which is important and turn to, turn to those things which aren't important at all. And if we look at Israel with all honesty we, and we are honest with ourselves, we see ourselves in Israel. And it's sometimes brutal in its honesty. But it's true. <clears throat> it's honest. And the moment we, we receive that truth is the moment that we are free. You see, a person who has cancer, who the doctor says you've got six months to live and you need to start this course of treatment, if that person does not accept the diagnosis or the prognosis, they are definitely not going to receive the treatment, are they? Because to undergo chemotherapy and maybe surgery is not something you're going to want to do if you don't believe that you're sick. And so one of the important things about being set free is to believe what God says about you and me. Unless you understand and accept the truth of the Scriptures, you won't accept the cure. This is the challenge that we have with sharing the gospel with people in this world. One of the greatest challenges is getting people to accept the diagnosis. The diagnosis, they have an illness, they have a disease that will inevitably bring them to a place called hell. They will die eternally. And there is no way back from that. There is a cure for this. There is a solution to this. And that solution is to receive Christ as your saviour and to have his blood cleanse you of all of your sin. Now that is something too difficult for a lot of people to swallow because they can't imagine how they can't be good enough to get themselves into heaven, you see. It, it hurts my ego to think that there's nothing I can do. Sure, there's something good in me, but the average person can't stand that thought because they've been told from a very early age that if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything in life, even get your way to heaven. And so they go the rest of their life without receiving the cure. But all the while they are dying more and more each day and eventually will find themselves in a place where they are lost forever. And so Israel shows us what man's nature is like and what our nature is like, our old nature, which hasn't been dealt with fully. It's still lurking around, but God shows us on a daily basis how to fight that thing. But sometimes within Israel rose people who show us what God is able and willing to do if they will just believe and if they're honest. <clears throat> and so today I'd like to start a new series which explains how Israel ended up in Egypt for all those years in the first place and it tells the story of one honest guy, one honest guy who was honest. He was honest with himself and honest with other people and that honesty got him into a whole lot of trouble, which we're going to see now. And this week we'll, look, we'll begin our look at the life of Joseph. So let's go back with me to Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. It says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. So let's just, let's just set a bit of a, a background here, a bit of a story. So Jacob had been through a very tumultuous time with his brother. In, in his life growing up, his older brother, Esau, the red, hairy man, okay, um, and his brother wanted to kill him because, well, he pulled a bit of a sheep, right? There's two reasons, right? So there was one time when Esau was hungry, and the Bible describes him as a profane person, right? Someone who doesn't value those things that are important. And, he, and the Bible tells us that he literally sold his birthright. So he was the first, the firstborn, which means he should have got the greater inheritance, the blessing from his father. But he was hungry. He got back hungry one day, and his brother was cooking some beans or whatever it was on the on the on the stew on the pot there. And he said, "Look, I'm hungry. Give me some of that stuff." And he goes, "Well, son, give me your birthright." And he goes, "Well, what good's birthright to me if I'm going to die? So just give me give me some beans." And and he sold his birthright in the moment, and that was it. End of story. Probably forgot about that one over there. And then when it came time to receive a blessing from their dad, who was well advanced in age, his mum convinced him to pretend as if he was, because his father had lost his sight, okay, to pretend that he was Esau. 
So if you remember the story, took some thing and put it on, because he was a hairy guy, he took some uh, some skin, ghost, whatever it was, and he put it on his, on his arms and he goes, hey, Dad, how are you? You know, I'm here. And he goes, oh, my son, that was huge. Right, give me a blessing, give me a blessing. So he blessed him with everything, right? And then when Esau finally got to his dad, he goes, what are you talking about? I gave you a blessing already. And he goes, no, that wasn't me. And then the Bible says that he cried and he wanted to kill his brother. And so Genesis 27 verse 41 says, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. So what we see throughout, throughout Scripture is often, I mean, starting with Cain and Abel. Sometimes families are a pretty messy place to, to grow up in, okay? Um, with brother wanting to kill brother. So Jacob sort of grew up with a love-hate, like not knowing, scared of his brother. There was one time when he, was, he thought, no, nah, they're going to they're gonna get us now. He thought it was all over. Um, his brother didn't kill him at the end. They ended up separating, and, and um, Esau ended up living in what we would call, what was called Edom, and, and his descendants, so his... His, their descendants were the Edomites. He caused a lot of problems down the track as well. Um, and Jacob ended up living in Canaan. Okay, so the land that God had promised to Abraham and his father Isaac. But this wasn't his ancestral home. You see, there was still Canaanites living in that area. And so it says he was a stranger there. So it's like living in a foreign country trying to establish yourself. But not quite. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you don't have all your people around you. You're all speaking the same language. You all have the same religion. It doesn't really, this wasn't happening here. So he's in a place that he's really still a stranger and trying to, to, to get some roots down into the actual land. Um, and it says that he lived as a stranger in that land. But he was living in the place that God had called them to live. And so... With this background in mind, it's interesting to consider the type of environment that Joseph was growing up with. You see, just I want you to understand how he was living, okay? So you, you get a better picture of what type of person he was in response to what was going on. You see, Joseph was the first of two sons born to Rachel, okay? And so he was Jacob's 12th son, okay? His, he was sorry. He was Jacob's twelfth child because Benjamin came after him. He was Jacob's twelfth, Jacob's twelfth child and eleventh son. Sorry. So if you recall, Jacob had first fallen in love with Rachel, and he wanted to marry her, but her dad came up with this other conniving sort of trick where he went into the the, the bride chamber, whatever it was, after the wedding ceremony, and it was Leah instead of Rachel, and so. He ended up marrying Leah, then had to marry Rachel again after. Okay, um, so he's got two wives, not just one. But Rachel didn't have children for a very, very, very long time. And so she thought she was completely barren. Um, and Jacob ended up during that time having five sons with Leah. These were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And now, what ended up happening is that it's a bit like Sarah. You know, the story of Sarah, how she gave her handmaid to Abraham. Well, they, this must have been some sort of a thing that they did in those days. And so Rachel gave her handmaid to, to Jacob, and he has two children with, them, with, uh, with her. Her name was Bilhah. He has two children, Dan and Naphtali, with her. And so... Bilhah had been given to Jacob by Rachel because she wasn't having any children with him. So she thought, oh, I might as well give him my servant so she can have his children. And then after the fourth child, Leah stopped having children. And she thought, mm, if you can do that. So she gave her handmaid, Zilpah, to them, to, to Jacob. And then Jacob ended up having uh, Gad and Asher with her. But then Rachel starts having children, and his 11th son, Joseph, 
was born to her, and then the twelfth was Benjamin. So by the time that he was 17 years of age, consider something for a moment. Joseph, Joseph is living with 10 half-brothers with four different mothers. Um, you're all thinking about, I know how complicated my family is. You can imagine growing up in that type of family. I'll let you imagine for a moment what it would have been like growing up in that family. And now we have a situation where he's the youngest adult, okay? Benjamin was not yet 17 years old anyway. He was younger. Um, and you have, like, this band of 11 brothers, um, and then the other 10 know that this youngest one is the favourite. He's the favourite one. He's, look at the way Dad treats him. And now, they were a rich family, by the way. They were very wealthy. They had um, hundreds of sheep, possibly thousands, cattle, camels, hundreds of servants, hundreds of servants that lived with them. And so they weren't, they weren't a, a poor family. They were quite a wealthy family. They did know the Lord and they loved the Lord. But with many respects, the family was dysfunctional. With many respects, there wasn't love among them. There was too much division going on in the background. And so look at verse 2 to 4. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad, uh, the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report, now Joseph, so Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colours. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So here we see Joseph was sent to tend the flocks with his older brothers when he was 17 years of age. But something must have happened. It said he brought back an evil, the evil report. So in other words, he probably came back to his dad and, and said, Dad, I saw something that wasn't good. Okay? He came back with a negative story. Maybe they they had told him off, or maybe he saw stuff that wasn't that wasn't right. But he came back anyway and told, and spoke to his dad about this thing that he saw. Maybe they were loafing off because they were all tending sheep. Either way. He dobbed them in. He, he went back to his dad and dobbed them in about one thing or another, revealing something about the relationship that he had with his dad. I think he loved his dad and wanted to tell him everything that he saw, even though the other, other guys might have sort of held back some stuff from him. And we'll see, we'll see a bit more about what they're like and what their nature was like later on as well. They weren't just you know, conniving, but they held back stuff from their own dad. Um, and we'll see that happening even more. But he was honest to the point that it was actually detrimental to him as well. You see, he spoke whatever he saw, he just let it out. He didn't uh, hide things that he thought might hurt his dad or hurt, or hurt other people. This character, I think, would have endeared him to his father. And so while his brothers may have been comfortable with hiding some stuff or conspiring or or hating their little brother and, and trying to keep him out of, out of their affairs, um, they were quite happy to deceive their father, especially later on when they try to kill him, okay? when, they, when they sell him off. But Joseph was not like this. There was no doubt that what Joseph told his father was, was true, but the result of revealing that truth would have brought more retribution to him. You see, if the evil report was about the way they treated him or something that, that they had done wrong, you go back and tell Dad, Dad, is it going to endear you more to your brothers or is it going to make them even more upset and more angry? And so people in life generally do not like dobbers. Who likes a dobber? I mean, seriously. I want you to keep my stuff secret. If I'm doing something wrong, I don't want you to go and tell other people about that, especially Dad. 
But then I'm going to cover hiding. People don't like telltales because it exposes their wrongdoings. And they would rather have those things kept in the dark. And some people in this world dob in other people or tell on other people or go around spreading gossip about other people. Why? Make themselves get ahead in life. They take advantage of other people and their misfortunes or their errors and they do it to promote themselves, to make themselves look better in front of other people so they can get ahead. They become like schemers. But also in life we know that people project their own selves or faults onto others as well. And so they imagine someone, remember I was telling you before that, we, that people love to actually work out and, and, and say the motives that other people are doing things for, okay? Um, many times people project what the way they are in their mind to other people when they do stuff. And they'll say, see, if that was me doing that, I'd be doing that because of this. And so they project their own faults onto other people, ascribing motives that they would have had. And the brothers are probably of this nature as well. They kept secrets from their father about what they were up to and what they would get up to because we see an extraordinary thing with they that later on is revealed in them. And Joseph was just simply ruining his plan. So they imagined that Joseph was doing this to conspire to get the upper hand on them so that he would actually come out number one. He was making them look bad so that he would make himself look better. It's often said that a thief steals and feels justified in stealing because he thinks everyone else does the same thing. Ever heard that, that argument before? Where people give an excuse about something they do that they know is wrong, but because they say, oh, but everyone's doing it. You know, like the, the way people speed on the ropes. Everyone speeds a little bit faster, and then because everyone else is doing it, oh, I'm justified in doing it as well. That goes with liars and thieves and every other type. People who see other people, then imagine that everyone's doing it. You know, why do I, why do I cheat on my, on my tax returns? I don't cheat on my tax returns, by the way. <laughs> but what, why does the person cheat on their tax returns? It's because they think that everyone is doing it. And they're justified in them doing it. Or they say to themselves, the government's stealing from me. So then I've got, I've got every right to steal back from the government. There's a lesson in here for us. You see, the same reasons are given for starting wars and destroying people and, and crushing them because you imagine, you say, but I feel threatened by them. They're a threat to me. Therefore, I have to jump in first. That's the same game. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I send you forth the sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so though we've been called to be wise, we're never called to be hateful, vengeful, conniving toward anyone. We are to act innocently as doves at all times. And Joseph, I think, does this exceptionally well. He was innocent at all times, but maybe not the wisest. So maybe his dad wasn't the wisest either. Um, the growing hatred that his brothers were now beginning to feel for him, you might say, well, it's all his fault. He told them those things. He shouldn't have gone and shared those things with them. But keep in mind, we're going to read now, what his dad does, he doesn't hide the fact that he's his favourite, does he? His father goes and makes him a coat. So his father was just as much at fault because he publicised his special love for, 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 uh, for Joseph. You see, Jacob was a fairly old man by now, Um and he must have had a special affection for Joseph because finally, after all these years, Rachel had finally had a, a child. It was her first. And he's old, and so you know how old people get when they have children? 
Not really. But we now have grandparents yet. We know certain grandparents that share videos of their grandchildren because they get excited. And I think in a similar way, Jacob would have experienced the same thing. There's an excitement that comes from having a new baby. And when you're an older person, it brings you even more excitement and more life. And plus you can spoil them as much as you like. Can you? And I get the I get the impression that it was almost like a grandfatherly sort of thing that uh, Jacob had with Joseph, because he was spoiling him. And so Joseph was given a special gift. Um, and indeed it was an unexpected blessing, uh, because Joseph was an unexpected blessing at that age. So Joseph was made and given a multicolored coat by his dad. Yeah? Um, that showed him how much he loved him. And can you imagine if you were Joseph? You'd put that coat on, you'd be walking around, have a look at this, have a look at the stitching here, look at the different colours coming here. Um, you'd be wrapped to, to, to demonstrate the love that your father had for you. It would have been wonderful. No one else has got a coat like this, and this just shows how much my dad loves me. And so you wear it as a display of your dad's. Every time you put it on, it's like displaying, reminding you of how much your dad loves you. But talk about um, putting a bull's horn on your son's back, making him a target. It's like it's like telling someone put a high vis vest, a uh, high vis vest on vis vest in this business. A high vis vest on or jacket on that glows in the dark, and then say, "Go and approach those soldiers over there." You're a Ukrainian soldier. They could see him coming a mile away. But the older brothers were grown men at this stage, and for the most part, they became jealous of their younger brother. When you think about, you're older. You're like. 20s and even maybe possibly, I'm not sure if they're in their 30s and more. Come on, you've got, you know, you've got your own life to live and now you're getting jealous about how dad's treating a 17-year-old, you know what I mean? What are you wrong with these guys? It's your own life, you know? Grow up. But but they became they became jealous for the way that the younger brother was being treated. You know, they might have said, oh, I never got a coat like that when I was that age. I never got this sort of attention. And so their jealousy leads them to hate him even more. And they hated him so much, it says there, that they couldn't even speak peaceably with him. So you know when you ever get to a situation where you can't ever say anything nice or normal to someone, where everything you say has to have some some sort of, every word's got to be tainted with some sort of sarcasm or some sort of, uh, you know, device that makes, that tries to put the other person down. I'm sure you've all experienced that sometime in your life where someone doesn't like you so much that every word that comes out of their mouth is there's something going on with it. It's not just straight. And so the brothers couldn't even talk to their to their little brother in any normal way without being sarcastic, hateful, hurtful. And so at this particular point, he starts having dreams. Actually, just a reminder about that. When you get to a point where you can't say something nice to someone or where, where you're saying sarcastic things about them either to their face or to other people, be careful because the roots of hatred grow very quickly and the fruits of it are long-lasting. So just be careful about the way you speak about others. It becomes then a, a mirror of what's going on inside you. Okay? Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we need to be very careful about what we're saying because it's revealing what's in here. So Joseph wasn't growing up in the most conducive of environments. You know, 10 brothers that hate your guts. Um, you've got a dad who adores you, but you've got four different mothers sliding around sort of working in the background there. It doesn't make life easy. And so now we get to the interesting part, and Joseph has a dream. And these two dreams that are listed here are not just, some might say, oh, that was a psychological response to his, you know, his environment or the circumstances that he was going through. No, these dreams aren't, aren't coming from his head. These dreams are coming from God. 
These dreams are so vivid and so different. I imagine by the age of 17, how many dreams have you had? You've had a lot of dreams. So why all of a sudden is he starting to talk about these dreams? Because these weren't just normal dreams. These things were so vivid and so real. It's God who put them there, and so he had to share them. Okay? So they were actually coming from God. And in a sense, these dreams uh, become prophetic as well. They not only are prophetic, right? So they'll they'll tell of a future, they're telling of a future time when he is going to be ruler where they indeed will come and bow down and ask him for his help. That's what's going to happen down the track. So they're completely prophetic. But they are also the means by which he gets there. Because when he shares these dreams now, all of a sudden their, their rage and their hatred come to such a boiling point that they, when they have the opportunity, they say, we've got to get rid of this guy. You see, the dreams themselves are both prophetic and the means or the channel by which he actually is treated so evilly by his brother. So look at verse 5. It says, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph dreams a dream about these sheaves and they're cutting things, they're tying them up into bundles, and he says, well, mine stood up upright, and yours bowed down to mine. I don't know what you're thinking. Why did you go tell them that book? <laughs> Why did you just keep it to yourself? I mean, you know, you've got this wonderful dream. Why did you go tell them that for? Because it's only going to get them more rolled up. Aren't you aware of what's going on? Aren't you asking for trouble? Yeah, and the dream didn't need a lot of interpreting either. It wasn't one, it wasn't one of those dreams where, you know, you might say, well, what's, what did he mean by that? It was obvious. Your sheaves are bound down to mine. And so I'm telling you that this is, you know, it's, it's a picture of you actually worshipping me or, or bowing down to me. Um, and this dream causes them to hate him even more. But did he tell them the dream to stir to stir them up? That's the question that most people have. Did he tell them this dream? Yes, he could have kept it to himself. But did he tell them the dream thinking, I'm going to stir up these guys. They deserve everything they get. And I'm going to, I'm going to share it with them, even though it's going to stir them up even more. I'm happy to do that. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think this was his intention. And if you look at the second dream, you'll understand why. Because in verse 9, it says, And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Surely I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed Come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth. And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. So if it was just, if its purpose was to create a wedge between his brothers and his father, he wouldn't have gone then and said this next dream to his dad because it upset his dad. Because his next dream was about his dad, his mum, and his brothers. And so he's gone and told this thing, Dad, look at this amazing dream that I've had. You know, there's 11 stars, they're my brothers, and they, they're doing obeisance to me. But look at this, even the sun and the moon. And his father knew full well what that meant. It meant him and his mother. And so his, his father gets, gets annoyed at this dream, and he goes, what are you talking about? What, now even we are going to be bowing ourselves down to you? And so it wasn't a plot just to create a wedge between the father and the sons, making him out to be some sort of, a, you know, a saint in the middle. No, no, this he's just sharing whatever he's seen, even if it's upsetting his dad. But this wasn't an ordinary dream, and Joseph knew it. That's why he had to share it. Some would say that he was too honest. But let me ask you a question. Too honest. When God tells you to share something, and it's going to cause conflict. 
Is that being too honest? When Jesus spoke the parables, when Jesus preached and it upset a number of people, if his father told him to speak and it upset people, and Jesus, if Jesus said, oh, Dad, um, if I say that, then you have a, a group over there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, the they're going to they're going to come for me. Can't we just mellow this one down a bit? No. Question about being too honest. If if you're if you have a heart for the gospel, and someone comes and tells you, what's that about? Can you stop them speaking? If you love people and you want to see them in heaven, can you stop from speaking when the door opens for you to speak? No, you can't. And Joseph was in that same place. You see, it wasn't Joseph who was being pushed himself to say these things. It was God who was pushing him on the inside. It was God who had given him these things. It was God who wanted him to say these things, and Joseph couldn't help himself anyway, even if he wanted to stop. But it tells you something about his character. But the interesting thing about this particular thing, and we'll close with this particular chapter anyway with this, with this passage, um, is that Jacob, even though he got upset with his son and thought, hang on, what are you talking about? This doesn't seem right. He actually went away and pondered it. He thought about it. His brothers, on the other hand, envied him, it says, and the relationship that he had with his father and his seeming arrogance toward them. So they had hatred, envy and resentment. Not a very good combination of feelings toward the brother, that's for sure. In all of this, Joseph may have been wrong or insensitive about the way he openly treated Joseph. Oh, sorry, Jacob might have been sensitive about the way he treated Joseph. Joseph may have been insensitive about the way he shared those things. But there's something about the difference between them and Joseph's brothers in that neither Jacob nor Joseph, with their words or actions, did it with vindictiveness, malice, hatred, or envy, or jealousy. It was altogether a different spirit. It is one thing to be careless and inconsiderate. Okay? We all fall into these faults. I know I fail people many, many, many times. They might expect me to do something or to say something at, you know, at the right time to, you know, to so there's an expectation that we have of each other, right? to do certain things, to behave a certain way, and sometimes we let each other down. We all do it. There is a difference between falling into that fault from time to time where your intention is not to do it, but you may do it out of error, you may do it out of weakness. But it is an altogether another thing to show hatred, envy, jealousy, and resentment. Why? Because one is done unintentionally, the other one is done intentionally. One is done by a fault. The other one is like a cancer that's growing and is going to kill both you and the other person. Jacob's error was that he showed favoritism to the other son, to one son. Joseph's error may have been that he's maybe spoke a bit too much about his dream. But there was no hatred in either of their hearts. In, in these character flaws that they had, they were simply that, character flaws. But the brothers' character flaws were altogether a different thing. You see, their character flaws led them to grievous sin. And so I'm going to close with this story. None of us is perfect. None of us. None of us can actually put up our right hand and say, I am perfect before God with the way I live my life. I do everything right. I consider everyone. Whenever someone's sick, I'm the first one making the phone call. I go out of my way to help everyone else. I'm always considerate with the way I speak to people. I always say uh, the right thing at the right time. I am always caring, always loving, always patient, always merciful. I am humble at all times. I never make an error. Can any of us say that? No, none of us can because we all know how far short we fall of that that 
that lofty ideal that we have in our minds. Some are better than others. Some are better than others at times, and some some people find it difficult just to keep the momentum going of those things. You may, your heart may be in it, but sometimes it's very difficult to keep that thing going. Maybe you missed a phone call, forgot to say goodbye to someone, forgot to catch up with someone. You know, maybe you said a harsh word when you were tired one day. You know, maybe you had a, a lack of response to someone who was pleading for your attention and you didn't quite realize it and you just forgot them. Maybe you gave a foolish response to a serious question. Maybe your eagerness to speak meant you aren't listening. And so you're too quick to speak rather than listening to what the person is actually saying. We have much to learn, a lot to learn, a lot to grow into. But hatred, which we allow to breed in our hearts, is not like these things. Hatred is to harm yourself and reject the love of God. Envy is being blind to your own blessings. Bitterness is a root that eats your soul from the inside out. The moment we choose not to forgive another one's fault and they make an error of, the, of, that, of those, those types that I mentioned is the moment we choose to open the door to hatred and bitterness. And that was happening with the ten brothers. Their brother had no hatred towards them. Yeah, he may have been foolish, he may have been whatever it was, but he didn't hate them, but they hated him now. You know, a lot of people in the world who don't know their Bibles imagine that the Old Testament is very different from the New. They say that the God of the Old Testament is this bitter guy who's always hung up on justice, and he, if you put a foot wrong, he'll kill you, and he doesn't care about love, he cares about justice and laws, whereas the New Testament is all about love, right? But Leviticus 19.17 tells us, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not in any wise rebuke thy neighbour and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. You see, love was always there. And, and the Lord said, I don't want you to hate anyone else. Your brother, last of all. But in the New Testament, we're told something similar. Turn with me just to 1 John chapter 2. It's a good rapid action. 1 John First John chapter 2, verse 10. Now you've heard the you've heard the law that God gave about not bearing grudge against your brother and not hating your brother in your heart and to and to not do evil upon him. Now tell me which one is more difficult? The Levitical law or this one you're going to hear from John? First John chapter 2, verse 10 says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him, which is harsher. Which, is, which seems to be more difficult. One tells you that you're a murderer if you hate your brother. One tells you that you're walking in darkness if you hate your brother. And we'll see the culmination of this hatred that these brothers have for their, for their little brother next week when they seek and have this desire to murder him. So let me close with this thought. If you harbour bitterness toward anyone, there's no better time to begin actively loving that person. Do the opposite of what your old nature tells you to do. In forgiving them, you will free yourself and them also. And be truthful. Be honest. 
with people. Be honest with yourself first of all, because the scriptures tell us that the heart is deceitful above all things, and the one that deceives the most is ourselves. But praise God, we have the word of God, which is like a mirror for us, and it reveals to us what we're like. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, Lord, I know, I have this fault. I have this bitterness, or I have this hatred, or I have whatever it may be. I have this sin that's lurking there, and I need you to help me overcome it. I need you to forgive me for it and help and free me from it. But you won't receive the treatment if you're not going to accept the diagnosis. So be truthful, because this world is starving for truth. Starving for it. It doesn't know where to find it. There are so many conflicting ideas and thoughts out there. They need truth. And so truth should be in abundance in the house of God. And if we're not truthful with ourselves, we are not going to be truthful to everyone else. So even if it may mean that people may hate you, when it comes to sharing the gospel with them, still share it. Because it's vitally important. The truth is important. It's only the truth that sets people free. Yes, you may look foolish. They may call you a weirdo. That's okay. Most people who are in the, in here, in this very room, used to think the same thing, right? Used to think that these people are weirdos. These people are strange. Or they're stupid or they're foolish. And now you're finding yourself sitting in this seat. So praise God for that. Don't give up on them. Because God didn't give up on you. And he'll never give up on you. And so remember that. And I'm not saying be ever be disrespectful um, or be hurtful. You have to speak the truth with wisdom and with love. But we are to speak nonetheless, even if it brings retribution and hatred towards us. Because in that, God will build his love. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. We have one further hymn to finish this morning's uh, meeting. Number 298, 298, 298. God leads us along in shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet. 298, please stand with me as we sing this. We're going to sing one, two, and four. One, two, and four on 298 on the first verse together in shady green. Singing together.
blessed for all the time you've been with us and for those uh, uh, meeting with the pastor and the deacon uh, up in the back room make sure you make your way up there so we're ready for that and the rest of you or maybe the choir they be anyway the other rest can have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and some fellowship together good to have you with us today good number and uh, keep praying for one another that uh, we'll be protected during the week that our lives will be showing the Lord Jesus through our life as we uh, go about our business. Bless us now as we uh, uh, pray to uh, be dismissed this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich blessings to us. We thank you for the, the family we have here, the opportunity to come as a group at Faith Baptist Church. We thank you, Lord, the way you're leading us through this uh, situation. Uh, for the many times we've been through trouble, uh, during the last couple of years, we pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to uphold us, give us strength as we uh, live in this world. Give us opportunity, Lord, to share our faith with you and our love for you with those we meet with, whether it's at school or at work, family, whatever it might be. Bless us, dear Lord. Thank you now for this opportunity to have fellowship together and that uh, you would bless us through this uh, week as it approaches us. We pray all these things in your name with thanksgiving. Amen. Dismissed. Thank you.